welcome to the All Things Physical Therapy Podcast. This is your host, DPT Steph, your doctor of physical therapy, bringing you all things PT with an interdisciplinary approach so that you can be the best clinician that you want to be. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the All Things Physical Therapy Podcast. This is your host, Stephanie, otherwise known as DBT Steph, and on today's episode, I'm super excited to have not only physical therapists, but also co-authors of this new book that we will be discussing, Tim and Brian. To get us started, guys, why don't you give us a little introduction about yourselves? Sure. Thanks for having us, Steph. Uh, this is exciting to be on, be on your uh, podcast here. I'm Brian Gosky. I'm a physical therapist in uh, Rochester, New York. Uh, originally from Utica, New York. Um, I currently practice in an outpatient orthopedic setting affiliated with uh, Strong Memorial Hospital. I uh, went through orthopedic residency program uh, with Tim uh, in 2015. Um, and since then, we've worked on a few different projects, and uh, one of which I'm excited to talk to you about today, uh, our book project. So I treat uh, a lot of kind of persistent pain um, and spine-related issues in my current practice. Um, but I see everything from uh, runners to uh, athletes to shoulders to concussions. So I see a wide, wide range, but um, a lot of, lot of spine-related uh, issues currently. Yeah, Steph, thanks for having us. Uh, my name is Tim Reynolds. I'm uh, currently located in Ithaca, New York. I'm a full-time professor at Ithaca College. I teach anatomy physiology, and I'm a part-time clinician at Cayuga Medical Center, <clears throat> where I treat in an orthopedic outpatient setting. Um, I graduated from Ithaca College with Brian back in 2014. We both went and did uh, orthopedic residency at Cayuga Medical Center in 2015. I then went and further specialized by doing a spine fellowship. And so my patient population when I do treat um, is predominantly individuals like Brian was talking about, uh, persistent pain individuals with spine pathologies. But I'm only in the clinic now uh, two days a week for of 10 hours. So my, uh, my clinic time is significantly reduced, um, which has opened up opportunities to explore other avenues, kind of like uh, the book that we've been working on. Nice. So let's like backtrack for a second and kind of give a brief overview as to how both of you ended up in PT and then ended up kind of in the heavily ortho or like spine settings that you're in now. Yeah. So uh, I think everybody has like the inception story. <laughs> so uh Back in my day, when I had a baseball injury, uh, I think I was 16 years old, I went to physical therapy, and you're like, man, it was so cool. I had pain. Now I don't have pain. And they had a chance to talk to people and help people. And so uh, that's probably the reason why I became a physical therapist. And uh, what was nice about Ithaca's program was a direct entry into a doctorate. So there's no reapplication from a GRE standpoint or applying to grad school. And so from there, that sort of facilitated my opportunity to become a physical therapist. And then I think the mentorship opportunities, I think we can all relate back to one or two individuals who really helped sort of steer our clinical career. Those individuals were heavily orthopedic in nature, which opened up the opportunity to pursue residency. And then once I landed a position at um, Cayuga Medical Center, they just started a spine fellowship program, was looking for someone that was... uh, probably not married, young, and motivated, and I fit most of those criteria. And so I was able to have the time to be able to devote to the Spine Fellowship, um, which was an amazing opportunity. had a lot of good, uh, valuable skills that I was able to learn and to walk away from. Yeah, so on my end, uh, back in high school, I uh, 
wanted to go into nutrition. Uh, I also wanted to be a teacher and I also liked exercise science and strength conditioning. Uh, so I thought that PT kind of fit the mold for me being able to practice all three of those things. Uh, so that's how I kind of got interested in it. And then I did some research on it. Um, as Tim said, you know, we both attended Ithaca uh, and it was a nice program there with the freshman admittance. So entered into the DPT program as a freshman and six years later, Tim and I uh, graduated. And then after that, uh, I knew I was passionate about orthopedics once again, because I thought that I could uh, combine, you know, all those elements and my, my interest in terms of nutrition and strength and conditioning and just general fitness and exercise. Uh, so I jumped into orthopedics, did a residency program, uh, got really into teaching and mentorship, and I currently uh, direct the orthopedic residency program uh, at the University of Rochester, actually. So um, that's kind of my feel on how I, how I fell into PT. Nice. So there's a little bit of, you know, different but similar paths, I'd say, in a way. So now you're both, it's almost seven years, if my math is correct, out of PT school. What has kind of your journey been since graduation? Obviously, we know where you are at career-wise, but from a clinician standpoint, your own growth that you've seen in your practice, within the profession, outside of the profession, and so forth. Yeah, I think that's uh, one of the opportunities of our profession, which is so great, <clears throat> is that you come out as a new physical therapist, you're excited about all these skills that you have, and then you enter the quote-unquote real world and you realize that you know nothing about how to really make people better, even though you've been on clinical experiences and stuff like that. Um, and so when I reflect upon, especially residency, I think residency was such an awesome experience. I was told by one of my mentors, it's going to give you five years of clinical experience in a year. And I think um, they nailed that, at least for me, that's what I perceive I got out of it. Lots of repetition, a lot of mentorship opportunities, a lot of mistakes, but learning from those mistakes. But when I look at myself and my development over the last probably three or four years, specifically since doing uh, fellowship training, it's been my mindfulness with my language choice and specifically how I interact with patients and the communication that I have with my patients. I think it's a completely underappreciated avenue and one of those skills we perceive as like a soft skill, quote unquote, where we highlight, oh man, did you do that lumbar manipulation really well? And people like brag about that, but they don't necessarily say, I crushed my language use today, did a very good job, didn't use any pathological terminology. And so fellowship for me wasn't necessarily learning the pathologies and how to treat those better. It was how to hone in on what I currently learned from residency and sharpen that sword, if you would, even more so. So for me, uh, my clinical interest has really shifted towards how can I best optimize my, my current situation, the language choice that I'm using? And since I'm only in the clinic twice a week, I have to be really efficient with my time and figure out how can I best incorporate what I want my patients to be able to do at home. So less about like, let's give all these different exercises. Let's take a look at your lifestyle choices. What sort of modifications can we make towards X, Y, and Z to facilitate a reduction in your irritability or at least get you back towards your goals? Yeah, to kind of piggyback off of that, uh, I shared and still share uh, that, that same sentiment as Tim. Coming out of uh, physical therapy school, you know, when you kind of walk in, uh, hopefully not day one, but, you know, we'll, we'll say in lack of a better term, day one, you have a full caseload. You're like, holy crap, I'm actually responsible for all these people getting better. 
And there's definitely that moment where you're like, man, I have never seen this diagnosis. I have never heard of a surgery like this. You know, where do I go? What do I do? And I think that's where mentorship or at least having some kind of formal or informal mentorship is, um, is, is really valuable. And I was very fortunate um, both as part of the residency program and outside of that to have that. Um, and just to have somebody there to bounce ideas off of and say, hey, what would you do in this scenario? What would you do in this situation? What would you start with? What kind of questions would you ask? I think is so valuable. Um, and I think it's starting to um, catch on and younger clinicians or young professionals are starting to uh, understand and accept how, how important that really is um, in order to, to manage those patients appropriately and, and get them better. So uh, that's one thing that I... Um, was, you know, kind of brought to the forefront and brought to my attention from early, uh, early on in my practice was, man, I need, I need somebody there. Uh, and I still do, you know, to, to bounce ideas off of and, and to talk through cases with. So uh, from that, I, I definitely was attracted to kind of teaching and mentorship. And that's really helped me stay engaged with the profession uh, and continue to grow um, both as both personally and professionally. Um, I think once you can teach something, uh, you kind of understand it and you know it better. Um, and being able to teach it in different ways helps you kind of unpack certain concepts or unpack certain, you know, we'll say uh, concepts within the physical therapy space or physical therapy management. So I, I think being able to explain things to different ways to residents or to, to colleagues has been really helpful and, and teaching that um, has been uh, really cool to, to help me stay engaged. Yeah, and I know a lot of students listening might have my upcoming question, and I, I know I get this question very often, especially on social media and messages and comments and et cetera. You both did residencies. What is your opinion on students doing residencies? Because so students get inundated with so much information and the age old question is, do I need to do one? Should I do one? How important is it? Or can I practice for a few years and then go to a residency? Or do I have to decide when I graduate? So kind of walk us through, I guess, both your decisions in choosing to pursue a residency and then your advice to students when they're kind of contemplating going down that road. I think that's, uh, that is like the million dollar question, especially as the amount of information that our young professionals, our students are not necessarily inundated with. I don't know if that's the best word, but you can go online and you can see thousands of different exercises, a lot of different individuals that are promoting their own material who have all these podcasts and articles online and YouTube videos. And so, so much information out there and it's hard to try to digest what is the best content and what is going to be best for me to, in order to get my patients better. Um, and so for me personally, I knew that I had this passion for orthopedics. Um, I had this situation where I was potentially going to be uh, going into a managerial role from a clinic director standpoint post-residency. And so I knew my mentorship opportunities might be limited if that was the direction that I wanted to take. And so if I had the opportunity to really hone in on some didactic coursework, which was orthopedic in nature, enhance my manual therapy skill set or knowledge when to apply those, and see what's up to date in terms of the clinical literature, um, for me, it was the best bang for me because it packaged everything up really condensed in a year and like I said earlier gave me that five years of clinical experience when I think about some of the um, responses that we had within our book so we interviewed all these individuals that were 
kind of movers and shakers in terms of the physical therapy industry. And lots of them have sort of that alphabet soup, if you would, at the end of their name. So um, OCS or MCS or CSCS or SCS. And so they've done some specialization training. And what's been interesting is there are common themes that we've found. And I would agree with some of these themes where education is important in the understanding that your education is not complete. You might finish your doctorate, but if you do not continue to pursue further growth or development, um, both from an academic standpoint, but also from a personal standpoint, then that stagnation is probably going to lead to either burnout or it's going to lead to you not necessarily challenging your patients or challenging yourself to be able to improve upon what you currently have. And so I do think that our profession is probably leaning a little bit more towards um, that specialization route. Um, I don't think it's going to be mandate everybody to do a residency. I don't think that's feasible at this point in time. There's just not enough. But I do think that having the opportunity to graduate and then finding some form of mentorship, if you do not have some sort of guided mentorship opportunity or feel like that you did not necessarily walk away from physical therapy school with the, I guess, most in-depth knowledge base that you were hoping to receive, then I would say residency is probably not a bad consideration for you. You know, it needs to be the right fit. Uh, so, you know, I think mandating that everyone does a residency program or some form of specialization training immediately after graduation is difficult because life circumstances are different as a, as a new graduate. Some might need to, uh, you know, immediately go into paying off student loans and working full time and then not taking a pay cut to be a resident is the option for that. And, you know, there might have to be another way to get some informal mentorship um, worked in there. So I think, uh, you know, when we get questions about our residency program, just speaking from my experience as the, the director of our program, you know, I have that conversation with the resident. Is this the right fit? Why do you want to do it? Do you want to do it for the right reasons? And um, what we look for, uh, what we think or, or believe, you know, um, residents wanting to do or uh, uh, new graduates wanting to do a, a residency program are that they really have a lot of clinical questions. Um, they have some uncertainty, which we all do. Uh, and especially as a young professional, you have a lot of it, um, but they have some uncertainty and they, they want to, um, as Tim said, kind of enter into a program that's going to condense uh, that information and give you high quality information um, into, you know, a one or two year format. So it really is kind of a fast track to learning more about a specialty area or an area that you're passionate or interested in. But you need to be curious, you need to have questions, and you have to be driven and motivated by the right factors. But, you know, it's not the right choice for everyone. And I think you can make an argument either way, and there's huge value in, in whatever track. There's a lot of value in kind of, you know, learning the information right when you get out of school and then practicing that for, for five years and changing it and adapting it to your, your current practice. And then there's a lot of value in practicing on your own for three to five years, seeing a lot of patients having more context uh, to the information that you're getting within a, a residency curriculum uh, and then applying it at that time. So I don't think there's a right or wrong. Um, I think it just really comes down to, to fit and what's feasible. Solid answers all around. I think that's some great info for students to kind of take away with and for, give them some, some food for thought. Because obviously, yeah, like you said, it is a very individual personal decision, but there's a lot of benefits to being involved in some kind of a program that's like that. Um, switching gears a little bit, the obviously the one thing we really want to talk about is this book, 
So kind of walk me through kind of what the process was that you don't, you didn't, did you wake up one day and have this idea? Was it kind of a brewing idea? And then, you know, just give like a little synopsis or summary and then we can jump into more detail. Yeah, so the idea, the genesis of the idea was during our residency program in 2015, Tim and I were, you know, taking a lot of courses, uh, taking in a lot of content from various different sources, but most of that from our coursework within the, the curriculum. Uh, and we started noticing a lot of reoccurring names coming up in the content that we were we were consuming. So, uh, you know, the, the Timothy Flynn's, the John Childs, the Shirley Sarmans, the Stuart McGill's. Um, so a lot of a lot of names that were, you know, kind of at the at the forefront of the information that we were getting, and you know, a lot of different treatment paradigms that we were implementing or trying out or, or learning within our curriculum. So we thought that was interesting that there, there was a theme of some, um, some definite movers and, and shakers uh, within the, at least the research space, that was what we were consuming the most of. So uh, we were also reading a book by Tim Ferriss called Tools of Titans at the time. Uh, maybe some of you have, have heard of that. Well, uh, Tim Ferriss um, in his book uh, interviews individuals like Tony Robbins, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, Oprah Winfrey, you know, really kind of high level successful individuals um, in whatever, you know, whatever criteria uh, you want to, you want to consider. These are, you know, very successful people. And so he asked some really good questions. And, uh, you know, I turned to, turned to Tim one day in one of our courses, and I said, you know, we're both reading this, this book, Tools of Titans. Well, what if we asked individuals within the PT space or rehab space um, similar types of questions. Uh, how do you think they would respond to that? Uh, and that was back in 2015. And we kind of, I don't know, that got brushed under the rug. We were working on a bunch of other stuff, kind of starting out our, our practice. And then in uh, 2018, it resurfaced uh, and we chewed on it for a little bit. And then we kind of created our own dream team, our own dream list, if you will, of, of PTs that we would love to interview and ask questions and kind of pick their brains. Uh, and then at the end of 2018, start of 2019, we sent out our first cold call emails, if you will, and, uh, and got some good feedback. What were some of the questions that you asked these interviewees? And what was maybe like a couple of common themes that you've kind of had takeaways from? So we asked kind of a, a core set of between eight and 10 questions of them off the, the top of my head and then Tim I think has the book in front of him so he can fill in any that I leave out but we ask questions like um, what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life um, either personally or professionally uh, what's your favorite failure um, and then what are your kind of beliefs um, on failure we ask if you had to put up a sign in every academic hall across the world essentially uh, what would that sign say and why um, we asked what is an unusual habit that you have and a number of others that Tim's going to now fill in. <laughs> yeah. And so I think what's important, um, Stephanie, to sort of think about is we can go online, we can go in a textbook and we can find answers to what are the three best quote unquote exercises to do for individuals that have low back pain, or we go into social media, Instagram, TikTok, whatever you want to do. And you can find this, oh, here's rotator cuff exercises. And we see the same sort of material that's being recycled, which is all valuable. And I think one of the things to understand is owning the space that you're within and staying in your lane. And I think that's one of the things that 
if you're a new graduate and you want to go out there and push out material that you're currently coming across because you're excited, go for it, crush it, like own it, you know? And so I think that's all really valuable. But then there's these questions that we'll never have the opportunity to understand what was Shirley Sarman's favorite failure, but we all know Sarman-based exercises. And so that's not going to be published in a textbook. Or when I think about what does Peter O'Sullivan think is one of the best investments that he's ever made, I'm kind of curious about that because here I am in my early 30s and what should I be potentially considering from an investment standpoint to maybe help align me towards the career path that Peter O'Sullivan made. So thoughts about like, what's your favorite, most memorable class or course? And so we hear a variety of different things from anatomy physiology or to uh, a McKenzie course, to a Mulligan course, to CrossFit courses. So we can see a wide spectrum there. And then stuff like when you feel overwhelmed or when you've lost focus, what do you do? Because I think specifically in today's day and age, speaking to the time frame when this is being recorded, it's almost finals week. So we have these students that have to sit down and try to study for hours on end, and they definitely lose focus at times. And so here are individuals that have succeeded in the career path that they're hoping to aspire to become at some point. And how can I utilize them as some form of a mentor? And I think we've talked uh, multiple times already in this conversation about the value of mentorship. And so one of our hopes and goals was through these questions, you might gain the answers to questions that you personally have or don't necessarily know who can you reach out to to gain that insight. So kind of using the book like an a la carte or a Frankenstein-esque man. Enter, if you would, where you're taking bits and pieces of certain people's responses and seeing what aligns to your values and then allowing that to help guide you down a specific path. You said that there is over 75 professionals. Okay. So obviously that's a large population size. I'm not going to get sure. all researchy here, but it's, it's, a, it's, a good, <laughs> it's a good amount of people. Um, would, would you say there was any like common or reoccurring Thing that they whether it was advice or failures or good or bad things for the sure. profession, et cetera. Yeah, I think uh, one of the one of the themes, and I'll let Brian hop in on the next, was this concept that everybody fails. And I think that's one of the things that specifically when uh, you can agree or disagree, Steph, but when you look at the individuals that typically sign up for physical therapy school or pursue this career path, we're kind of type A person personality to an extent. We do not like to fail. We tend to be slightly competitive or at least concerned about grades. And so somebody gets an 84 on a test and they're calling home in tears because because their entire friend group got 93s and they think it's going to be the end of them. As I'm laughing at this right now because I was the one celebrating the 85 while I had kids with crying about 85s after my first PT school test. And I was like, what is going on with this world? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I remember Brian, Brian could probably agree to this. I remember standing outside cadaver lab and watching kids hyperventilate in the hallway. And I think they were going to pass out because it's like, we're going into a practical. And I'm like, guys, we really have to pump the brakes for a second. Like, it's going to be okay. And so I think we take these individuals that want to succeed. And I think that's one of the things. It all comes back down to we just want to do the best that we can. And with that, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. There's this concept of this imposter syndrome that we tend to sort of have and hold sort of deeply where I don't think I'm the best person to do this job. 
there's so many other people out there that are pushing material or have such a big following on social media. How do I not have that yet? I must be failing because I'm not there. And so I think one of the, personally, my favorite question was about the failure because it tries to normalize failure amongst individuals that have quote unquote succeeded within our profession. There's people on here. So Julie Weeb's putting out amazing content. She's doing really good stuff. She just got a position at University of Michigan Flint um, teaching, but big in sort of the public health world. And it took her three trials to get into PT school. And so there's going to be individuals listening to this podcast, listening to other individuals online that tried to get into PT school and did not. There's going to be people that failed the boards. And Louis Pantadora failed his last clinical rotation. I can't even imagine what it would feel like. I get nauseous thinking about failing my last clinical rotation, literally being on the doorstep to my doctorate and knowing that I have to go back for more schooling. And so one of the common themes is everybody fails. And even in that failure, it is a stepping stone towards success. Embrace failure. Don't necessarily shy away from it. But the biggest thing is, can you learn from that failure? But what I was going to say is I like that last quote that you just said about failure. And I think that's a huge takeaway because that's something that I know I talk about often on my platform. And I almost didn't get into PT school the first time and I almost had to reapply. So I can speak from that experience, but I've had classmates who failed the boards and they're still successful clinicians. There's plenty of people in my DMs with all different backgrounds of failing clinicals, practicals, the works. And I honestly think I agree with what you're saying and, you know, probably as what people you interviewed said as well. I think if you fail, you might even be a better clinician because of that point that you were at and you had so much more to learn from that opportunity. So I think that's a huge takeaway, especially for students when they're still in this mindset where they may be more type A or imposter syndrome and clinical is getting the best of them because you have all these people like even just in your book, and I'm sure there's plenty more in the profession that, you know, have these backgrounds and now they're these fairly large successes or success stories in our field. Yeah, I think that concept that, that Tim talked about, the imposter syndrome, is something that we all feel and is really needs to kind of be normalized a little bit. I think that feeling of, well, I'm not the right one. I don't have enough experience. I can't manage this case or this is too difficult or, you know, it, rewinding in, in the PT school, it's, you know, this exam is going to be way too hard. What am I doing sitting in this lecture hall? People around me know so much more than I do. You know, it's, I think the question is, what do you do with that? And the, one of the themes that we found is that, Many individuals in our book, uh, yeah, depending on your, your metrics for success, we would argue that all of them are, are successful in some capacity. You know, they all felt that at, at some point. And what they chose to do with that is it drove them to, to learn more, um, be better, find more mentors, um, you know, take certain risks at some point, and ultimately kind of get better both personally and professionally. So I think... Uh, part of that imposter syndrome is very, very normal and is actually healthy. And yeah, you know, just to, again, piggyback off of that, the failure aspect is very normal within our profession. Um, both you'll continue to fail, you'll fail with certain cases and certain patients. Um, and through that, you, you do learn and you learn how to do better with the next one. So I really liked that theme that the failure is normal. And another one that we, we saw a lot of is um, guests in our book found ways to invest in themselves uh, and both um, personally, professionally, spiritually, uh, all, all sorts of different ways. So 
sometimes that, that, that best investment might be a course that kind of changed their trajectory or changed their track or thought process, put them on a kind of different track. And sometimes that was just people investing in themselves a little bit each day to kind of keep themselves content, uh, engage with the profession and, and overall, uh, you know, healthy and, and have a positive well-being. So the concept of investing in yourself was something that was kind of brought to the forefront um, in, in various different ways. And that's something that we also, you know, have to realize where you're investing in yourself, but it has to be something that is benefiting you personally, because obviously it's going to differ from one person to the next. And I know I actually recently spoke about this on my Instagram because that's something I feel like the pandemic impacted me hard with, where I almost lost like my sense of self and my interest because I was putting everything into work. You know, we're in lockdown too. A lot of the interests that we've had might've been stopped um, or, you know, come to a halt. So it's something that we have to kind of you know, really emphasize and remind ourselves of doing because it also is what's going to make us a better clinician and a better human, as simple as that is. You know, as we're starting to, I say this loosely, but maybe come out of this pandemic or return to some sense of normalcy where we're not at least in lockdown anymore. I'm sure you both have seen students have been hit tremendously hard from being virtual or half in person or labs or just one day a semester even. I've heard all the different horror stories, but what are some tips that you have for students who are kind of going through their programs right now, either partially or fully, or just, you know, trying to get their degree? Let's say, um, and it's something that I personally just sort of rediscovered as I'm only practicing twice a week. So that opportunity that how do I stay fresh? How do I stay excited? How do I stay passionate about the profession? And it comes back to that growth mindset and that opportunity to pursue things that challenge your current belief systems or at least challenge your current knowledge base. And obviously, if you're in physical therapy school, that's like every single day as I drew a nephron on the board and watched people's faces like just shiver at the thought of like sodium reabsorption. But the idea that if you can challenge the way you're currently do something and just try to avoid stagnation. Every day we wake up, every day we have certain tasks that we have to do, and it's easy just to punch clock, call it a day, watch Netflix, go to bed, wake up and repeat. And I think that's where we start to get into this mundane pathway where we start to notice that like things aren't as enjoyable anymore. And like you said, as we're missing out on some of like the fun opportunities that um, have been sort of limited through the pandemic, it's hard to continue to sort of ignite that fire and stay really passionate about certain things. So I'd say challenge your ability to go outside your comfort zone because outside your comfort zone, whether it's um, with your patients, right? Putting a new load on them is what's going to cause adaptation. If you do not adapt that load, if you just continue to use three sets of 10 of the yellow TheraVan, then you're going to stay at a three set of 10 kind of person. So try to overload yourself in healthy ways to allow for adaptation. And that should hopefully allow for you to find sort of that passion or stay excitement with the, with the profession. I'm going to pick uh, two things and actually both are from the book, uh, two quotes that I like that I think hopefully if, you know, as we're getting towards the Again, like you said, Steph, tail into this pandemic, fingers crossed. But knowing that students and, and young professionals have gone through a lot this past year, all of us have gone through a lot, excuse me, this past two years. One of them by Tim Flynn was just breathe. Uh, and I really like that. And I think if you can pause uh, periodically throughout the day, uh, close your eyes and take a few intentional breaths 
and kind of recenter yourself that can do wonders. And it's so like underrated. And honestly, if I rewound five years and somebody told me to do that, I'd be like, you know, chest breathing and be like, yeah, 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 I'll get to that. I'll get to that later. Uh, And still some days I am like that, but it is really, really helpful to go through five to 10 uh, slow, deep breaths, eyes closed, and just being really intentional to kind of refocus and and recenter and know that it's all going to be okay. And then uh, I know that sounds somewhat kumbaya and a little bit it is, but really it is all going to be okay. The other thing uh, that I really like, the other quote, excuse me, um, was by Shantae Cofield in our book, and it was diversify your joy portfolio. And what she means by that is there's, there's micro joy moments and there's macro joy moments, right? Macro holidays, going out on a Friday night, maybe hanging out with friends that you haven't seen in a while. Those are macro moments. Those are awesome. And generally we feel pretty good after those things, assuming you like the people you're hanging out with, but find more of those micro joy joy moments, find more of those little things that you can do throughout the day um, that bring you some level of joy or excitement or engagement and really embrace those and try to do more of those things and kind of dose those in just like you dose in exercise or you, you know, dose in uh, other things throughout the day to kind of help yourself stay well, dose in um, little joy moments. So those would be my two things. All great tips. I love all of those. And I think I definitely need to pick up a copy of this book because these quotes are just like hitting me right in the, right in the gut. (laughs) Where can people find you guys if they have any questions for you or if they want to grab a copy of the book? Yeah, so our uh, our website is uh, moversandmentors.com. And so if you go to our website, it has all our links to our social media. Um, we try to stay really active, really engaged on our social media. So if you uh, are interested, have any questions, send us a message, get, uh, and we'll love to sort of reach out to you. It's also a direct link to our Amazon. Um, and so if you go there, you'll be able to go to our Amazon account, which has the... Um, ebook version and our paperback version of uh, the book Movers and Mentors. And um, yeah, from there, we can uh, kick you over our own personal social media stuff too. Brian and I love having the opportunity to hear from some of our readers and um, be able to interact with them as they're sort of navigating the book as well. Perfect. Well, I thank you guys for coming on. It's been a great pleasure chatting with you. You guys know where to find Tim and Brian. And if you have any questions, you know where to find me. And we'll call it a wrap from there. So thanks for coming on. Thanks, Awesome. Steph. Thanks, Steph. Thank you for listening to this episode of the All Things Physical Therapy podcast. Make sure to leave a review and subscribe to stay updated on new episodes. You can find more episodes like these on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And to stay up to date, follow dpt.steph on Instagram or go to www.dptsteph.com.